it was difficult for you guys getting up. I can tell by the look on your face. Everybody's still a little tired from the bazaar. <laughs> Is it what they called it? Was it? The TCS Bazaar. Very sweet. The counseling table was just zooming because things were happening. And so, <laughs> what happened? The counseling table is particularly bizarre. It is. Did Jane say that? Get a hold of Jane. Jane needs some incarnate work for her ambassadorship. That's what we're going to talk about today. So, um, if you if you can look at this book, uh, we're going to go to the Colossians three. If you want to start turning your Bibles there, that's where we're going to start. But if you can remember that the book is like an hourglass on its side, and he's easing his way into the concepts and philosophy of what he's doing in ministry, how we interact in relationships, and he's moving this into a place of the bottleneck. And the bottleneck is really chapter 7 of the book. It's intended for the sand or the, the principles to move through at a slower rate and to be concentrated on. That's what it's designed to do. So, um, and that's why it's taking two parts of this. It could take three. Actually, we talk about the actual implications of how we invest in people's lives as ambassadors. But we're going to try to, we're, we're wrapping it up today, chapter 7. So, if you haven't really read the book, you need to really read the book. It's, it's going to change your ministry no matter what your gifts are, no matter where you are functioning within the body. Uh, it's going to change your attitude about relationships. It also changes your attitude about marriage and parenting because now you're going to understand the value of these eternal relationships that, are, that God has placed in our path and in our life and in our world because, um, because we're not navigating around in some random Randomness, um, theologically, we're, we're moving because of God's grace and his supreme plan of, of redeeming his people and helping us through the sanctification process. And so uh, now it's much different when you're in a relationship, especially in, in the close relationship of a marriage where that's where the, the masterful plan of sanctification happens in marriage because it's it's so rough at times, you know, your individualities and trying to blend and, and love each other on these different levels. So, you know, Chapter 7 kind of brings that to light on why is this work happening. If you remember, uh, before we start that, when uh, we read, it, you know, he's talking about do you want to be an instrument of change? And he's not talking about just change because of our sinful nature. He's talking about change so God can use us. Uh, that our life is in, important in the, in the carnate work. Sometimes people are so uh, stifled by their pain or the circumstances of life or their, their immaturity, self-centeredness, that, that is very little can be used other than an example of life uh, in the kingdom work. And so I don't care what your gift is. Uh, the incarnation uh, revealed, I mean, he's saying it was an incident, but it's also a continued work, that we're living out that incarnate work in other people for the purpose of, of redemption in other people. Um, and then he talked about the bottom line is that um, the problem is not that God is not here or that he is inactive. The problem is that we don't see him. 
Our perspective of life is too tragically godless. That was a, a principle we learned from part one. That uh, if you want to look at your problems, if you could, uh, you know, dissect them or at least lay them out, um, you will see that, uh, you know, most of your perspective on that, concepts of that, and your, and sometimes your involvement in that is for self. And that's what we're talking about. I had an interesting conversation with with Nate yesterday about uh, this whole thing of, of how God is working in us. And changing us, and how this whole thing is has to do with the sovereignty of God, is that we're we're the more we're in line with the work, the sovereign work of God, the more peace we have in our relationships and ourselves. No matter what the chaos is, uh, I can remember people saying when uh, Hurricane um, Andrew went across Florida, we moved there the about nine months after the hurricane hit, and. Um, we had still had police cars with tires, two tires on top of the of the cruisers, because there was so much, so many flat tires. You couldn't go two or three blocks without getting a flat tire in, in South Florida. Um, but I can remember, so it was pretty pretty recent. I mean, it was just like a, a a flat field as far as you can see in every direction, with nothing but concrete slabs and 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 pipes sticking out of the concrete slabs. Just no no trees, nothing. It was like a buzz saw went through and just cut everything, every block home. Everything was gone, just a field of nothing. And people were saying that it was eerie because when the eye came over, it seemed like it was all over <laughs> because there was so much peace in the middle of that big storm. And I think about that in our life as well, is that even though we have chaos or we have crisis or challenges, um, if we're centered in Christ, if we're right in the middle of where God's will is, uh, it doesn't matter. We can... We can get through this because the chaos is around us, but it doesn't have to be in us. Uh, young man uh, in St. Louis, when I was running my counseling center doing a church plant there, they, he came to me. He's like, ah, after 9-11, he said, I, I want to go. I know the Lord wants me to go. He's a great testimony. He's a Christian. He said, but I'm afraid to go and fight in Iraq. You know, And he said, I don't know what to do. And so once we determined that it was God's will, then I told him that's the safest place you can be. It doesn't matter the geographic place. Uh, so you could be, you know, clearing buildings in Iraq if you're in God's will. You're, you're wherever God wants you to be is where you're going to find the most peace. So hiding in St. Louis, you could be hit in the head with a brick and killed. So it doesn't matter. You know, just be where God has you. So we talked about that new agenda last week. We talked about how love is what's supposed to saturate our hearts and our life. That's our agenda. Our agenda is to... Is to, is to have a loving disposition and that love reigns and rules in our heart. We think of 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Our 13, the love chapter, but 14, 1 says is the love rules. And so I think that um, we forget that all of our religious work, we forget that all of our investments and all the Bible that we have in this church is supposed to transform us into loving agents of Christ. That's the idea, isn't it? Not, we're not supposed to have more knowledge than the other Baptist churches. We're not supposed to have more um, more skills in exegesis or better hermeneutics. Our better hermeneutics will not transform us if we're not humble and dealing with the right selfish issues of our life. That's really what we kind of learned in that part. Now, this thing recycles all the way back to first or to Colossians, the third chapter. Remember, I I sort of camped out on this. It's a great practical theology passage, and um, 
So go eat popcorn. Okay, I got it now. I remember. Here it is. Verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, and in some versions like ESV says chosen of God, holy and beloved. He's, he's identifying. He's giving us an identifier who we really are. We're holy. He used this word hagios or to be, to be holy is that sacred, if you wanted to say it that way, consecrated and sacred people of God. Why? Because of what his son did. And beloved. I think we forget that this is, this is a word that's agapio, but it's really built around another word that says much loved. Much loved. So he's saying, let's start off and just tell you who you are. You're the elect of God, cleansed and sacred, consecrated by the, the blood of the Son. Of my only son. And you are much loved. That sure he set the tone, doesn't it? Put on. We're talking about this word put on and put off. We talk about this word being clothed. Is to be clothed. Tender mercies. That's the better word. Does it may have an ESV? What does it use there? Uh, we're in verse 12. Compassionate, something like that? Yeah, compassionate heart. Yeah. And this is a better translation. Uh, tender mercies because it's really what he's talking about is having that tender mercies kindness uh, it's the same as goodness I guess humility of course is humbleness humbleness of mind is what that word really means meekness and long suffering that's what it's supposed to produce in us there's like here you as God's people Clothe yourself with these things, tender mercies. Can you imagine if you clothe yourself with these things in the relationship of your own marriage and your own children, if that was the sort of the foundation, that was your disposition as you go through. Disposition is a wonderful word. We, we use this in uh, counseling a lot of time. We, you've heard the term PTSD. Anybody ever heard that? It's pretty common, isn't it? But it's not just post-traumatic or post-traumatic stress dis, uh, was it? Disorder. disorder it's we call it disposition we call it disposition because it's not something imposed upon you it's something that came out of you and so that's a disposition that's how i can help people get past their ptsd uh troubles is because they change you, if your disposition is expecting something different than what god's sovereign work has provided for in the bigger picture and he says so he starts off by telling who you are what does he want now here's some of the work we have to do. Those are adjectives, but listen to this. Here's what he's saying. Bear with one another and forgive one another. If anyone has complaint against one another, and that's a good translation here. This It's a little wordy, but this is the Christian Holman. No, this is New King James. Wow, that's good. Okay. <laughs> they expect that from the King, New King James. It's good. It's a good translation. Um. Uh, even if forgive them, even if Christ has forgiven you, you must also do that. And above all these things, put on love. Here's the focus above all that. And that's all good stuff. He says, put on love. And this is where trip is making the journey on part two. You're going to see this all tie together here today. We hope you just take away a couple important principles that are going to help you in your own relationship. There's no reason to come to Sunday school to learn more. It's just not necessary. Uh, in fact, whatever you did, whatever you read today, you learned more than what we're going to cover in an hour and a half. We're not staying here an hour and a half, okay? Just telling you because pastor's here and that would be my job. I would be done. 
But seriously, we want this to be transforming and we want it to be practical and useful. And he says, above all, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That means it's work that's complete in your heart. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. This is what we really want. Anybody say something? Okay. He says, let the bond of peace rule in your hearts. The peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body to be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Another thing that we should be thinking about. I would say this to you. Whatever you do in your devotions, please never skip your Bible reading. Just read your Bible. I mean, it's important. Think about it, what it's saying in context to it. It's fine. If you, if you need notes, do notes. But at least read your Bible. It's something the Spirit of God will use. Remember, the Spirit of God used the Word of God in the child of God. And so we have to be on that journey. We have to invest the Bible. In fact, you're already in an anemic state if you forgot to read your Bible. Spiritually anemic. is The anemia is already set in. In your life, if you forget to read your Bible, you have to read your Bible every day as a Christian. So let it rule in you richly with wisdom and all wisdom, teaching and admonishing. Admonishing uses the word nutiel here. It's where Adam's built his counseling uh, system around with this word to instruct, teach, or admonish one another, rebuke. In, in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, no dancing, no drums, singing with grace. All right, I added that part. Uh, Fred picked that up on pretty quick. You see that? He's like, oh, I got to sell those drums at the house. You know? That must be the Hager version. That was the Hager. Yeah, this is the this is the Hager study Bible. <laughs> New Hager translation. New Hager translation. And whatever you do in word and deed, do it all in the name of Christ. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, giving thanks to God for all things to the Father. What a great blessing! So we start off. Um, in the book on page 120, and I do wish you would read this because this is what I would call the bottleneck part of this thing that's really designed to help us. It's the bigger picture of of the incarnate work. Remember remember this, uh, he said that this incarnate work is what's continually working through you for the benefit of everyone and others in your life. So that's our, um, that's the power of Christ working in us. But there's a trick to it, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. I'll be able to explain the, the visual theology in a second. But he says, um, he says this, we forget to call the incarnate the love of Christ. We take our relationships as our own. And so he talks about the idea about relationships. The first one is he has a higher goal for our relationships than our personal happiness or comfort. When you, when you hear that, what comes to mind? I'm sorry? Yes, raising children. Wow. If you don't have this, if you don't have this one, just say, Ben, try to catch this one, you know, out the second floor. You just go like, how do you deal with this? No, your kid is really challenging. But it's true. There's a higher goal in raising your children than just for your own satisfaction or comfort. So we don't worship our children, as Katie says, right? What else? Anybody else? When you think about this, what are you thinking? There's a higher goal in your relationships than your own happiness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, and the other thing, think about this in contrast to that. Think about, will these relationships ultimately make you happy? You know what I'm saying? So the the point is, that's not the goal of our happiness, is it? 
That's not the goal of our happiness. If God, if you're not satisfied with God, you're not going to be satisfied with any relationship. Um, and so he brings that out very clearly in the book. Uh, the second part here, he says, and he wants our relationships to be the context for the change he works in and through us. What does he mean by that? If you read the book, you kind of understand it, but just take a shot at it. What do you think he's saying here? He wants our relationships to be the context. What's he mean by that? No, that's right. You know, it, remember this, is that <clears throat> what, what Nate is trying to say here is that for your change, you know, as he says, for the change he works in us. So to understand and, and read and understand all the truth, theological truth out there, you could be the greatest theologian that ever lives, but without relationships, there's nowhere to exercise that and for that to be a reality in your own life. Relationships help you humble yourselves. They want you to help you understand how to forgive somebody else, how to live uh, other-centered and humble, how to serve one another. People love to go flat-screen TV apart from the church. Oh, I watched it. I, I live-streamed it. I know, but you're not practicing the one another's where you're learning to use your theology, and it's actually changing you from the inside out. What you're saying is we need 3D. We need 3D. <laughs> yeah, we need 3D. Yeah, that's how I do my jogging. I put that, I do that virtual thing, and I, put on, I run two miles with that. Cindy said, the problem is I'm not doing virtual reality in my eating. Um, so that's really sort of the thing you have to think about. But relationships, we need them. That's what he's saying. Yes? I was just thinking about that uh, Paul Washer video we watched in Grace and Granite. We talked about God's ultimate purpose in marriage. It's not just our compatibility or happiness, but actually... Says how he teaches us mercy and grace. Amen. By that going through that actual relationship. So that's like the, the conduit or mechanism that he, by which he teaches us those. Amen. Those Amen. Us. You're just about going into, you're going into 800 level training, 600 level sanctification when you get married. I don't care if you have an associate's degree. You're going into an 800 level training <laughs> class for sanctification. Right, Fred? Amen. I mean, other than Heather. <laughs> other than Heather, I'm saying. I'm not talking, I'm not including Heather. Heather's been putting it in. Well, now we're talking concept, okay? Let's just talk, con- Heather's here. With a lab and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. This is what Tripp's trying to say. He's saying, you know, we just can't spit truth. We just can't understand truth. We have to be in relationship with people. It's changing us. It's changing us. And then he says for the last one, we need to build relationships that encourage this work of change. What's he saying here, really? What are we saying? We're building relationships. What are you saying about that? What are some key components to building a relationship? I just want to say, uh, when you talk about the, the teaching component, you have to be as intentional about building relationships as you are about preparing to teach. We, have, we, we think that relationships are organic. We want it to be just natural fit, you know, I, well, like, it's amazing to me sometimes where even my kids say, well, I'm not going to stay for balance lunch because, you know, I don't like chili. What? In, in other words, it, it, 
Yeah, so it's not about chili. So, right. right, it's not about chili. It's just right. one dimensional. Yep. And you have to be just as intentional about building relationships as you are about building a lesson and preparing for a lesson to teach. And a lot of times you just want that relational piece to be kind of organic and just kind of all fit and all like each other. It takes a lot more work than that to, to invest in that to make it work. No, that's that's a good point. And it'd be, I can give you another quick example. I don't like to go to the biblical counseling conference because I'm not going to be a biblical counselor. I know, but what about the relationships? You know, uh, and and what what were they going to say that's going to impact your life in other relationships? How's how's your change going to come about as you're bumping into him and those lessons and other people and how how we can express this through relationships? I mean, it's a missing link for me a long time ago. I thought if I could just share the gospel like a magic trick, people would get saved. Because if you're not if you're not intentional about it, then what you end up doing the filter usually ends up being that you're surrounded all look alike and sound alike. So we all have the same language, the same vocabulary, we're all the same cheerleaders because you, you filter all the naysayers, contradictory people. You, you filter all that out naturally so you just end up with people who all look and sound alike. And that's just not not very constructive really. Right. Same waistline, same everything. It's just it's just crazy. <laughs> maybe not all that talk. much, you know, maybe, maybe not that much, but yeah, right now it's like you're doing keto and jogging. You get those two pieces. And you're already, yeah. You're on the fast track running, not jogging. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, running. Running, running is big. Running. Yeah. We don't jog. No, we don't want to jog. No. That's, so there's three practical principles emerge from God's work in us. And we're talking about this work is in us. So we have relationships that will help us develop the incarnate work that God wants to finish in us and through us for his sake and for others. Here's, here's what's happening. So let's take a look at this. Here's what I did on my visual theology thing is I, I help you see that we have this experience level where we have relationships, and this is the external part of our life. <clears throat> but what's happening here is the internal part of our life. This, this is how we relate to them. So as on the faith level, we understand the incarnate work and the ambassador's preparation so as we're preparing and we're putting into practice what we learn, we're, we're actually exercising our faith. We're actually doing those things that are necessary in relationship. We're building relationships, even if we're uncomfortable with it. We're building relationships. Well, you're going to be good at this. You're going to have the ability to love and invest at the level that God is doing this work in you. So you can't go and learn how to have great relationships without God doing something in you first. That's what he's saying. Now, if you're not going to follow this process, you're always going to default to the unbiblical system of self-love. It's still greater than the love of Christ in you. That's the enemy. The enemy is self-love, self-preservation. And this is where we get into all these other people issues of depression, anxiety, all of it's still about me. It's still about me. I know there's incidental parts, we call them situational issues that cause these issues, but as a general rule, I'm just anxious all the time. Well, I would say as a general rule, you're self-focused all the time. Well, as a general rule, I would grew up in depressed family. Well, as a general rule, your family taught you to be self-focused and self-centered in your thinking. It's not about you. And you can abandon all those things, even professionally as a psychologist. They will, they will teach you how to distract your feelings and thoughts with other things. And they're just a distraction. We want it to be life-changing. And so we do that by submitting ourselves to God. And we learn to 
die to ourselves, what the Bible talks about. I love the way um, one of my professors, I don't even know if he's still alive. I guess he is. Uh, Ron Elkin? Okay. Anyway, he taught us that uh, one time, he's like, if you, if you can get people to first memorize Romans 6, and then and you explain it verse by verse over the next few months to them, a little bit at a time, that's such a work that the Spirit can grab a hold of and teach them to attack whatever is selfish and whatever is self-focused in your life. Just those 23 verses. And he, he did his own little 25-year study, and he found that the 80% of the people who were addicted or had life-dominating sin were free who memorized Romans 6. And it wasn't just about you know doing some rote memory. It was like they were really understood it that, wow, should I continue in my sin that grace may abound more and more? And they go on and on and on. No, since you've died and raised with Christ, sin no longer is your master. And then they put those words in there, and it's really interesting. And so, again, if you're not doing this God's level of working in you so you can do this kind of ability to love others, I just can't love my husband. I just can't love my wife. Then you're defaulting to a self-love. Self-love is still the stumbling block to the work that God wants to do in you. At some level, I'm not pointing a finger here. I'm not. It's not shaking a finger. It's really just about the reality of how self-love and that Romans seven is such a a brutal part of what I do is I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do I do, and that's a battle that goes on in the, because of the fall. And so that's how that works. Any questions about this? Any ideas, some comments? I don't want to go too fast. Okay. Three practical principles he uses on page 123 in the book is he wants to um, unpack these things, which is really good. Um, he's saying that um, you, have, you need to understand your standing, your condition, uh, and then actually your, the work. That God is the sanctification work. Um, and he brings these three practical things out in some really good points. I'll just, I don't know how to just put them on. We'll talk about them. God's redemptive activity always takes place within relationships. So how are you going to be a good evangelist without people? <laughs> right? Uh, and so the, having a, a good view of the gospel and understanding it yourself and it's being a recipient of the grace of God and redemptively, then you're prepared to be a redemptive agent in other relationships. So God's redemptive activity always takes place. And God uses them to prepare people for himself. It says this is the way he works, and he, and he calls each of his children to be part of this work. This is another thing. It's not exclusive to the pastors and elders in the church. It doesn't work that way. You guys are the ministers of the of the church, the ministers of the gospel. We all are. And so we have a responsibility to start this work. Now, I, I really didn't get involved in this until I got involved in biblical counseling. And that's part of the reason I got involved in this because I needed so much counseling. I mean, that's that's why we did it. So now we're like, hey, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of Mark and Cindy's out there, broken marriages. You know, let's let's get part of this. Let's get trained. We didn't realize it was a life journey of training. And scraping away the selfishness of our own hearts. Um, but that's an important part. God's redemptive activity always takes place in relationships. It sounds simplistic, but let me remind us, we do all kinds of religious work without relationships in mind. Kind of what, what uh, Jeff was just saying. You know, we think, well, okay, do I want to go to this event? 
Do I want? I don't really want to. I don't like that speaker, or I don't like that topic, or that's a bad day for me, or I'm not really part of that ministry. Instead of thinking about what does God want to do here at this moment, uh, it's interesting. And God's first step in change is to draw us into a relationship with Him. Everything starts with our vertical relationship with God. And again, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's something that sometimes we're missing. We think we can prepare to be a, a, a good agent of change for others. I see this in counseling all the time when I taught the seminary. Um, almost all the students that came uh, that were in my class, certainly in my responsibility there, were there because they needed counseling. <laughs> because once they figure out why people, they, no, they just needed counseling. It was cheaper to spend money on a master's degree in biblical counseling than it was to go to psychotherapy. I mean, some people told me that. So they wanted to learn. They wanted to, you know, and, but they were actually on the right journey because that has to change you so you can help other people understand that change process. And that's what he's talking about. The first step is drawing us into a closer relationship. And, and I can remember my supervisor, um, my counseling supervisor, Dr. Rao, always told me I had an anger problem because I, because I wasn't praying right. I wasn't praying enough. He didn't come up. I thought he was going to come up with some deep theological thing that he could put his finger on and I have to look up the Greek word and <laughs> he's like no because you, you're just your prayer life is terrible and I'm not even there I'm like what he goes yeah you can't be angry that much and, and have a good prayer life you just can't and so we talked about it and I start confessing to him we start talking and he gave me some a journey to follow he says I want you to go and every time I'm drifting to more anger I have less prayer it's always the same thing. First thing we have to do is have a relationship with God that's transforming our own life. Our relationships are essential to the work of God and complete in us and others. And these are all just sort of simple um, understandings here when it, calls, when it talks about Christ's ambassadors and this work we do. Like he says, as Christ's ambassadors, we too must begin by building relationships of love, grace, and trust with others. This is the um, covenant, covenantal view of change as we can uh, consider earlier like the relationship god established with us through christ the relationships we build uh, we build provide the context for his continued work of change so we see god's work in us as the model for the work for him then these other three things emerge it's really interesting isn't it so <clears throat> there are a couple of gates that we probably need to unpack here um, one last thing I wanted to uh, point out was that he says it all begins with our attitude about something. This is really the most difficult part to police in your life is an attitude because if you're evaluating your own attitude, uh, you're going to be deceived, okay, because our hearts are pretty deceptive. We're thinking, well, we do a pretty good job or we're not. I love the way I think Brian said this one time. He said, you know, you're not as good as you think you are and you're not as bad as you think you are. You're just always deceived. You're never, you need, the, we need other people to mirror, to talk and speak into our life, to tell us the truth about where we're really at. But it's about these attitudes. Now, how do we build these relationships? I, I sort of have to accelerate through this process, but we need to have four gates that I'd like for your discussions with if we can. The first gate is to listen for self-focused emotional words. Like, I'm angry. I'm afraid. I can't stop crying. These are cues, triggers for you to be able to 
engage with them in a relationship, to have a discussion and, and start discussing that. These are words that God has connected you somewhere in that process, and all of a sudden you're talking to someone who's having troubles. And it, you can see this first gate, if you will, um, listening for self-focused emotional words. Okay? Um, what comes to mind? Anything? As you're thinking through this? Okay. And so this is what I'm hearing. I, okay. You know, because it's brought a lot of turmoil into their family because she has been living for years just with my brother as a husband and wife. And then you have this other brother who's in there who's loud, just literally when he speaks, he's loud and strong opinions. And um, she's a very naturally controlling person. So she says, you know, that the relationship between you, she and her husband, my other brother, you know, it's honestly gone down, and she's crying a lot, and she feels like now her husband doesn't focus enough on her, but she'll say it because she's a Christian. God first, of course, but then I should be second. <laughs> so I'm not at peace in my home, and so yeah. it's hard to counsel her because I do. I go back and forth on, am I supposed to be telling her, well, you're too self-focused at this point, you know? It's not about you. It's about the relationship. I mean, it is honestly yeah. hard to say when they're just kind of using you as a as a just a, a, a sounding board and to be able to vent and to be able to go get it off her chest or what you know what I mean. It's, yeah. So I am seeing those things. Yeah. I do feel like I don't do maybe a good job on saying. I mean, we talk no. about the process of sanctification, in it, but but at least you're engaging. I mean, you're engaging, you're talking, you're asking good questions. And usually a lot of people in, are in that particular area, are, they want God first as an obstacle or an, an object. Right. Like a crucifixion, you hang on the wall, see God first. But the, but the reality is they want first in relationship. They don't see God as a relationship. It's still an object. So a lot of times that's, sometimes that's where, they're, that's where the fall, fallout is, is mm-hmm. between what they see as God as a relationship or an object first. And they say, then me. And a lot of religious people think that way. Pharisees are we're very good at that. Mm. Very good at that. Anybody else? There's another gate. Listen for self-interpretive words. This shouldn't happen. I guess this, I'm getting what I deserve. I wonder if it's even worth getting up in the morning. Words like that. Any other interpretive words? Self-interpretive words? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the, the interpreter, the exegeter of all of, this, all of life. I have all wisdom, and I'm going to interpret my life biblically. And you're not using the scripture. All the why questions you're saying fall under your why this. Yeah, why does this happen? Why is this? Maybe, maybe it's like maybe they're they're making statements of interpretation. Maybe it's not. It's less why. Probably the why ones are coming up. But this one would be like I'm making look. Look, I didn't go to church enough, or I didn't read my Bible enough, or. God doesn't love me, I guess. You know, things like that. Do you think it's too that we forget that we live in a fallen world and it's, these things happen? I mean, I, I'm, I'm always, I don't know, I think troubles the world, but these people who blame the devil for everything. Yeah. You know, <laughs> on Facebook, you know, the evil one's after me and stuff like that. But we live in a fallen world. Yeah. <laughs> we live in a fallen world. Yeah. And I tell my high school students this all the time when. In apologetics, it's not the way God intended the world to be. So it's you're operating from a skewed view yeah. of what it should be. 
Yeah. And so, am I getting what I deserve in that? But it's a sinful world. It's a it's a reality of the fall. Yeah. That's how Brian always says it. Yeah. Amen. It's good. Very good. Here's another gate. I listen for wrong self-talk. There's good self-talk, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know the Lord loves me. This is not true. You know, you talk to yourself, get yourself back in from the Scripture, back into your think, away from your thinking into reality of Scripture, because the Bible interprets reality perfectly. So we use that. But wrong self-talk is I'm a failure. I can't do this. I can't do that. Uh, no wonder God doesn't love me, or I guess God doesn't love me. Self wrong self talk. What's the last time you heard of some wrong self talk around your your world? Huh? From my son this morning. Yep. Yep. Sure. Amen. Anybody else? These are opportunities to connect. This is what the Lord's doing. Look, He's giving you an opportunity. Think about this with your spouse. Because all these things can be spousal. And so you can be in this relationship and there's two things that need to happen when there's an opportunity for conflict. First, right off the bat, is you get to see where they're at theologically in their relationship with God. First thing is they tell people telling themselves all the time. A uh, pastor down in Florida taught me that years ago, Bernard King. He said, yeah, you just listen to people. They'll tell on themselves all the time what they really believe about God. He said, so same thing with your spouse. When they're, when they're having meltdowns, when they're doing this, when they're doing that, whatever it is, and you're not happy. First thing they're doing is you can say, wow, God love them. That was my, grandma, my mother's place. She would, she would address that as a Christian. She'd just say, oh, God love them. You know, I don't care if they're killing each other. God love them. Look at them. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, she would just have a standoff view. It was like, okay, you're not going to make my world chaotic, but God love them. Look at them. They're still struggling with that. All right? And then there's the second thing God's looking for, how you respond to it. What is going to be your response in that relationship? Those are two things, guys. He's not looking at the chaos and how it's, oh, he's hurting my poor child, Mark. Oh, poor thing. Bless his heart. No. He's looking at, first of all, he's revealing that so you know how to speak to them and engage in that redemptive slash incarnate work as an ambassador. Second, You get to show and to use the power of what's been transformed in your own life through how you respond to it. It's important. He had another one uh, that I didn't write down. Listen for God talk. I put wrong God talk, basically. I thought it was God was, I thought this is what God wanted. Uh, Another one was, he simply doesn't hear my prayers. I recently had a counselor tell me that, that God is just not listening to his prayers. And he said, I'm reading Psalm 32 and I'm, Psalm 34, I'm telling him exactly what David said. Where are you, God? Uh, And then how could God let this happen to me? God talked. It gives you a chance to engage. They're telling on themselves. There's there's something missing. What's the relationship to God? And what's happening inside them is pretty pretty, um, revealing. But then is how do I respond to this is important. So I know you guys are, there's not much coffee we got a couple minutes, but what did I just say? What are the two things that are most important in, in conflict? Huh? How you respond. Heather, she gets an A today. Yay. What else? Yes, they're telling on themselves. God bless them. 
God love them. Look at them. They're crazy. Their love's in their mind. They have meltdowns. They're, they're whining. They're crying. Must be something wrong. So I need to engage. I don't need to try to correct it or take offense. I need to engage redemptively with them. Amen? Take a look at this in our time, closing time. Um, so we're going, we need to approach them. Here's some, ask good questions and resist giving personal opinions, which is really good for me. I don't uh, do that well. But here's, you may be gentle in approaching them, but here's some page 133 questions. I'm just going to say this as we close real quick. Uh, really good things uh, Paul talks about. Uh, what, here's some questions we engage. What came into your mind as you read that note from your spouse? What are you struggling with the most right now? So we're trying, to, we're trying to engage a conversation. We want some dialogue. We want to try to draw this out, and we're going to draw that into a biblical conversation. We're not going to be quoting Scripture and stapling that on them to try to be the solution or spitting truth at them like, like Nate said. But what are you facing now that you thought would never, you would never face? I want to draw them out in their pain and their understanding. What are you feeling right now? Uh, and I realize that's not the answer, but, you, but it's, it's their reality at the moment in the meltdown. What are you afraid of right now? Uh, are you feeling angry? And what's, what's the real struggle here? Describe how you see God in this situation right now. It's a good question. How do you, you know, do you feel hopeless? Do you feel like God is asking you to do something that's impossible? Uh, what questions do you wish you could ask your husband or, or wife in this moment? What questions do you wish you could ask God in this moment? Uh, when you can't sleep, what thoughts keep you awake at night? What part of the situation gets is getting you're getting the most out of, or, or hurts you the most? What regrets do you struggle with? But he says, most important thing as we close, I'll just say this: you ask questions to look for the themes of their life, the themes. Remember that night in the book, and the themes he's talking about is this a, a real anger issue? Is it a control issue? Is there no relationship? Is this um, uh, immaturity? What is the theme? And question them, and you're hearing this dialogue and investing in their life. And if you don't get the right answer, you don't cut off the relationship. You're investing in this relationship because that's a, it's, a, it's an eternal and redemptive thing that you're doing. And you love them for the purpose of loving them for Christ. Um, and that's the ambassador's work. Amen? Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, again, thank you for our time. Thank you for my friends in this room and the challenges they face because they are ambassadors for you. They represent you. And so I pray that you'll do continue that work in us, in our relationships. It's both to be redemptive and it's also both to be sanctifying. So it's sanctifying while it's redemptive and it's necessary. Help us to not avoid relationships, even in our pain, to embrace them to be challenged by them, to be changed in the likeness of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the work that he did in us and that we can always come to you. Thank you for the word that you've implanted in our life that's presenting sanctification work in John 17. And so we love you and praise you. We give you all the glory today. Bless my friends in this room and their children and their, their, their children to come in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we'll see you next week.